This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Shouldn't you be at work? When the seagull follows the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. You can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Oh, a magnificent goal from Darren Huckabee! Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, oh he No! Hello and welcome to Series 8, Episode 4 of Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? We're still here, we're not breaking away, we're not going anywhere. I'm Chris Gold, joining me as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And the man who's just absolutely apoplectic at the news that the top English teams might break away to start a new league, ready to launch in time for the 92-93 season, it's Michael Mudd. Hello. Did you have any strong feelings? I think I was too young to care. Did you have any strong feelings about the birth of the Premier League? Uh, uh, mostly excitement, but yeah. only because I was too young. I was 13, so I didn't have any understanding of the business side of it. I just remember it being a huge deal, but not fully understanding why. A bit like the kind of build-up to Christmas when you're young. You're like, I don't know what this means, but everyone's excited, so yeah. I'm excited. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But did you have Sky? No, but my friends did, so I'd go around there oh, and watch okay. the wrestling and the football. Yeah. Premier wrestling. League just sounds ex- more exciting right. than the Yensley First Division. Well, it was the Barclays. I think it was the Barclays First Division, wasn't it? Oh, was it the Barclays Premier League? Someone will correct me on that. It might have just been Division One. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I don't even know one. if it was sponsored to that. I point. think, no, you think you're right. I think it was Barclays Division One. What a great start to the episode. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, well, should we get straight on with the 90s o'clock news? Let's go. From the headquarters of ITN, News at 10, with Chris Scull. Our top stories today... Standing room only in 1994 accurately predicts the emergence of the European Super League. Leaked audio from referee Gwyn Owen of Anglesey during the coin toss from a Boxing Day match in 1979. And how Steve Froggart met his wife. That is three very strong headlines. Okay, do you want to hear a clip from Standing Room Only? This is from 1994, making predictions about what football will so be just like. to be clear, if people don't know what Standing Room Only is, it was a kind of... A bit like Fantasy Football League, really. Well, not quite, but it was like it was like a kind of football fanzine show, wasn't it? Like a kind of magazine yeah. show, but for fanzine culture on BBC Two, hosted by Simon O'Brien from Brookside. Um, this clip's about 90 seconds. Do you want to hear it? You think television... 
television is too powerful in sport now. In 10 years' time, you won't believe the control that they'll have. Television will run football completely in the next century. In 10 years' time, the fans will be incidental. If they are part of the equation, it will only be because the television companies want them to provide a spectacular background so that they can bring their pictures into millions of homes. Good evening. Welcome to Magpie TV, where tonight you'll watch Barcelona versus Newcastle United in the European Super League. He'll watch it on his own local Newcastle cable station because the BBC or ITV won't be able to afford the, the rights to the game. The cable operator will have paid a fortune for it, but he knows he'll get the money back from subscription. It's probably going to be done on pay-per-view. So you put a, a card and a number on your telephone, tap it in, five quid dot from your account, the game pops up. I don't think there'll be any room for fanzines once um, we have pay-per-view TV systems, once we have credit card entry to ground, a more middle-class audience which will be bombarded with literature as soon as they walk in through the turnstile anyway. The new style of fan will see losing as a sign of failure and will not want to turn up. Hence, the hardcore support that always carries a club through its leaner times will have gone. Um, priced out to be replaced by people who are really just glory hunters. If this is the future of football, you can stuff it because I and all the other old-style fans just want no part of it at all. Fans in the future will see losing as a kind of failure. Yeah, I don't think that's worked out. <laughs> I don't think they give a shit. Also, the example in there is of Newcastle would be in the European Super League. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? If you'd started a European Super League in the mid-90s, you'd have had Liverpool, possibly, Man U Arsenal. Then you'd have had you'd have had Newcastle. If you'd started the European Super League in 1993, Norwich would have been in it. Yeah, God. <laughs> Blackburn would have been in the European Super League, wouldn't 100%. They? 100%. Blackburn, Newcastle and Norwich could have been in the Nor- European Super League had it come along 27 years earlier. But it's quite funny because all those different pundits are painting quite uh, like uh, the apocalyptic picture of modern football. And then that one guy goes, well, you won't have fanzines anymore. Yeah. Like that's on the same level as the death of football. <laughs> like fanzines. How will this affect the fanzine market? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I, know, I know, like we made that point at the time, I mean, not to get too editorial, but like obviously this happened, there was a breakaway with the Premier League back in 1992, but you just, you just, that conversation we've just had there around all the top teams in the kind of early 90s, you know, Norwich, Newcastle, like you say, that's the cyclical nature of football. The Premier League never stopped different teams rising and ascending, you know, and, and falling. The, the Premier League empowers that. You're still a route, it's still a competition. If people want to write in with their perfect moment uh, for the Breakaway Super League, i.e. during the 90s when the top six would win the funniest six teams... <laughs> To have made it into the European Super League, then do oh, write give it. us a, go like a date, t- yeah, a date in the diary when you take the top <laughs> just six. Send us the date. Send us the date, and we'll uh, we'll find it. We'll do the rest. So that clip was from what ninety four? Did you say? Yeah, yeah, nineteen ninety four. So it's it's a good twenty six, twenty seven years ago. I think we should predict the future of football so that oh, in twenty six yeah. years time, okay. someone is going to use this as a yeah. pool, a pool quote for their podcast or holodeck or whatever version of kind of content is being consumed at that time okay well i think there'll be i think maybe there'll be various teams there'll be various franchises around the world so you'd play the european super league in winter 
you know, like cricketers play in the IPL and they play for a county and then they'll play in the Australian Big Bash. So players will can zip between three different franchises in America, Asia and Europe throughout the year. God, that's bleak. Wow. Have you always thought that's like what an intricate thought? That's crazy. It's not that crazy. I'll be honest with you. I just thought about another sport and copied it. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard not to paint an even more bleaker picture. And like, I was thinking, is something like this inevitable? We talk about the future of football. Like, is this inevitable? The American models? There's so many American owners flooding into the sport with with American ideals. Is it inevitable that something like this is going to happen? I've said it once and I'll say it again. USA 94 was a huge mistake. (laughs) (laughs) It was the Trojan horse. We let them in. Exactly. We should never have given them the world. Who are the the other options for for the World Cup in 1994? (laughs) This was the fork in the road. The fork in the road was that three nations bid. United States, Brazil and Morocco. We should have done Morocco. Do you know what the actual big sliding doors moment for modern football was? Diana Ross missing the penalty. Do you think? <laughs> because it, if she puts that in the net, then the Americans aren't trying to spend the last two and a bit decades trying to make up. Oh, they've they've been satiated. This is their yeah. this is their revenge. They've got something for Diana to Ross. <laughs> right. They know we're mocking her. Right. What's next on the uh, news, Chris? Next, um, someone sent me a clip just talking about how football has moved on. There's some audio from uh, a coin toss from a match between, I think it's Manchester City and Everton on Boxing Day in 1979. Thank you to Scott B, who sent me this on Twitter. This is the audio from referee Gwyn Owen of Anglesey as as he undertakes the coin toss on a Boxing Day match. This is exactly my scene. Merry Christmas, Jimmy. All the best, all the best. Yes, meet my linesman. Hello, Mick. All the best. Have a Merry Christmas. Yes, have a good time to all of you. Yes, meet my linesman. Seasonal greetings from today's referee, Mr. Quinn Owen from Anglesey. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Meet my linesman. Meet my linesman. I just love about that. How like amateurish it is. This guy as well, like big old sideburns. You just couldn't get. That's a different time, isn't it? Like he feels closer to like the Victorian age yeah. than than us now. Yeah. Meet my linesman. Meet my linesman. I don't know. If that, I don't know if that's a good impression. If you isolated <laughs> that, that would feel like a um, it'd feel like a racist impression. Let's just <laughs> lovely bit of audio. If anyone's got any audio of um, there's some audio of Clive Thomas. Do you remember the referee Clive Thomas? He was, he was Welsh as well. And he was mic'd up for a game. I think it was an Arsenal game. Oh, no, I think it's David Ellery, actually. It's David Ellery. He's mic'd up for an Arsenal game. And the Arsenal players didn't know. And they're just absolutely swearing at him so much. Yeah. There's a bit where Tony Adams, I think, uses a few expletives where you're like, Jesus, how has he not been sent off for that? Yeah, it's mad. (laughs) Compared to rugby, I know, which is obviously shit. But compared to (laughs) rugby... (laughs) Like where they have to respect the referee, it's absolutely mad. Would you be Would you be up for the refs being mic'd up during football? Um, yeah, yeah. Why not? 
I'd love the dugouts to be mic'd up. I watched um, Formula One at the week. I haven't watched Formula One in years. I don't know why. I just, it just caught me on that moment. And actually, you know, like they do the team radio thing oh, yeah, now. Yeah, they do, don't they? And, and I was like, well, what if you could mic up the dugouts? I'd love to hear what Jurgen Klopp shouting. Like, if you had the audio in of like, what's Klopp shouting about? What, what does Trent Alexander need to do? What's the problem over there? Yeah. Or just like, there's so many more analytics that are like kind of popping up. He's he shouting like that. Just Hitlers. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Do I yeah, not like that? Actually, it would be really disappointing. <laughs> this, Carlton, is a t- this is a test. Carlton, this is a test. <laughs> if anyone wants to uh, take the footage of uh, Modern Managers and edit uh, the uh, Graham Taylor uh, audio over the top of it, we'd happily tweet it out. Um, have you got time for any more news, Chris? Uh, we've got how Steve Frogger met his wife, but we've just out of time, oh. sadly, so we'll have to move on. Okay, well, we'll do it next week. That's a shame. If you've got any news uh, next, uh, do email it in, hello at quicklykevin.com. Now, it's the electronic post bag. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the electronic post bag. You've got mail. Now, Miss Her Chance. So, this is from Howard Robinson. Hi, guys. In the late 90s, my mate started to come along with us to crew matches and got himself a season ticket. The two teams many crew fans would consider to be our main right. Do you know, I didn't know who... Who are crew's two main rivals for two points, guys? Oh, rivals? Warsaw? No. Michael? I mean, absolutely no idea. They are Stoke and Port Vale. Mm. As they're both based in the pot, well, it's, it's local. They're, they're, as they're both based in the potteries, the two teams are known as the Clayheads to crew fans. A popular chant sung at most games was "We hate Clayheads." It was only after my mates had been coming coming to the games uh, for several months that it became apparent that he had been singing "We hate playoffs." <laughs> <laughs> It was only 18 months or so after he'd been promoted via the playoffs. So if anything, we'd be more like to sing We Love Playoffs. <laughs> Keep up the good work, uh, H. Robinson. Well, that's, I love that. The thought that he, because when you mishear a chant, you do it in your head, reason it out. Do you know what I mean? You go, oh, well, maybe, you know, they don't like, they've had some bad luck in the playoffs. <laughs> or, you don't go, that would be absurd. Yeah, but the self-slam that's implicit in that, like, we don't like playoffs. We're, no, we're no good at playoffs. <laughs> what, what's just, the house's logic the done that? that, that well, I suppose, I don't know when this was, but like in the 90s, I think playoffs was still a slightly controversial thing. Now, you would never think about it, but I'm sure when I started watching football, they'd come in in the 80s, hadn't they? It was felt when Plymouth lost to Burnley in the playoffs in 94, having been 12 points above them. It was felt like a huge injustice. Yeah. It was like, this is not on, that this is allowed to happen. Do you know what I think the problem with it is, is the, literally the word playoffs. Because it does, again, feel such an American term. Yes. How would what would you, you call yeah, them? How would you rebrand it? Uh, it? You call it knockouts. You're into the knockouts or something like that. Oh, that sounds too much like it's a knockout. You can't say that anymore either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that your main issue? <laughs> The other thing about like playoffs. playoffs and clayheads is like you can you can understand the confusion with like clay and play. You can mishear that, but yeah. playoffs, clayheads. Like how how are you mishearing the second half of that phrase? Yeah, yeah. It's but I suppose it's just so 
if you don't know what the words are, chants are so difficult to make out. I wish there was a, a way. You know, you know when sometimes you're watching a game on TV and you can hear a chant in the crowd, or maybe it's like you're even then you're like, what? What are they singing? I wish there was an easy way of like figuring out what's subtitled. being sung. Yes, do like, you, yeah. It does raise a good question, which is if you go to the football as the guest of guest, you know, along with someone to watch their team. What's your willingness to join in with all the... Do you love joining in with all the chants and all that stuff? Absolutely zero. Like, uh, under duress. Like, for fear of my family's life, maybe. (laughs) Maybe I'll chant Beef Alert. (laughs) I'm not singing at Old Trafford, let alone singing at someone else's ground. No one's bloody singing at Old Trafford, mate. Am I right? (laughs) Um, Just on the note, they're like, at West Ham, we used to... um, If we, like... A, a chant that would like slam ourselves. We would sing if we were winning away from home. We would sing, "How shit must you be? We're winning away." And I always thought, like, I said, we're kind of slamming ourselves there. Like, <laughs> like other players here, and they go, "God, yeah, we are shit." Like, does that doesn't like? I love that. I love the self-effacing West Ham away following. The kind. I, know. I always say, no one hates West Ham more than hardcore West Ham fans. <laughs> Like they ha- like the the people I know to hate West Ham most are big West who go home and away. And I, I wonder if there's like that other clubs. Is there any club like is there any club that doesn't on their message boards kind of go? This is typical Port Vale <laughs> when they lose. <laughs> is there any club that goes? That's a shame because we normally score last minute. <laughs> rather than let them win. <laughs> what do City fans? What are City fans like now? Like, oh, that's oh, we're really good at this. Actually, more nine times out of ten, we'd have won that. <laughs> okay. Before the brilliant Tom Crane, uh, always good to get him back, isn't it? Always good to get him back. Uh, if you are enjoying this episode or have enjoyed any episode and you want a minimum of 15 minutes extra, plus you want to get these episodes on Friday rather than Monday, go over to patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin to join the Quickly Kevin fan club. You also, uh, at certain levels, can get um, four pieces of merchandise a year and also two bonus episodes a month. These include our Steve Bruce chapter-by-chapter readings with Ivo Graham and our bonus episodes. Um, Out this week was uh, the most recent chapter of Steve Bruce's Striker. That is patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin. Now we come to Tom Crane. It's, as always... My favourite episodes are the watch-alongs where we watch old documentaries about um, football. You think we're running out? I'm going to tell you now. I've got 26 emails in the watch-along inbox. This is going to go on for quite a while. But this <laughs> week, we've chosen to do a QPR special where you have a documentary on QPR, uh, a QED documentary from the BBC in the late 80s on QPR. And we've also got the time that Noel Edmonds gotchered QPR's squad. Here it is, the amazing Tom Crane with the amazing Queen's Park Rangers. Hello, Tom Crane. How are you? I'm very good. How are you, Josh? Good. Uh, you hadn't written an intro, had you, Chris? No, I hadn't, no. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's that's just, is that it? <laughs> and just as well. How, how familiar we killed it. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. When I logged on to this call earlier, first thing I heard from Josh was, right, shall I get a glass of water and we'll just, should we just do this? <laughs> <laughs> I 
nothing speaks of the excitement. Josh sees me about 15 times a week. Yeah. <laughs> of all the people he can't be asked to speak no, about QPR with. I'm looking but, forward to it. We never I'm get sure to talk about QPR enough. We're not enough, you, not enough. Do you have any strong feelings? As a th- I'll throw it out to everyone. Do any of you have strong feelings either way about QPR as a club? I always thought QPR are a big media team. Like because of their proximity to Television Centre and the fact yeah. that they would be referenced a lot on Blue Peter. I yeah. assumed I for QPR more than any other club. I assumed were a big kind of media. How often were they referenced on Blue Peter? <laughs> well, uh, wasn't there the famous? I don't know because the Blue Peter Garden was really close to Loftus Road, wasn't it? And yeah. you, oh, it's, uh, and we've yeah. all heard the story that the Blue Peter a Garden time capsule was dug up by drunken members of the QPR team. We yeah, it was that? Les Ferdinand, wasn't it? I but apparently that's not true. No, but. That really permeated my into my consciousness. That's the that's the kind of club. So you thought they were a big media team because Les Ferdinand had stolen the Blue Peter Time <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. And also, if, if you flip over that Tracy Island, it makes a perfect Loftus Road as well. That's the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the hidden secret in that. Uh, the other thing about QPR, do you not think they're a weird club? Like Loftus Road is quite a weird looking ground. They had the plastic pitch and Guinness as a sponsor. Just weird things. But that's cool. I mean. I, I th- I think Loftus Road is one of my favourite grounds in the football league. Yeah, I love it. It reminds me um, of like the Dell and those sort of like close yeah. quarter sort of. I think it's great. It's exciting. The fact it's sort of like in the middle of so much. You know, it's slap bang in the middle of the city and it's so tight. And uh, yeah, it's, I think it's a great ground. I wish there were more of those sort of things. It, it's, it feels, yeah, it's got far more heart than these sort of soulless big stadiums that are built sort of nowadays. It's it's uh, yeah. I I think there's a real charm to QPR. I do. I really like them. I, I've i been there with Argyle a couple of times and I really love it. And I often think if I was to adopt a London team, I'd go with QPR, I think, if I had to start supporting a London team. No, you would get a ruler from your house, the nearest football ground, and you would start supporting West Ham. That's how it works. <laughs> I, think, I think what you mean is that would be described as the nearest sports facility rather than football. <laughs> Multi-use. <laughs> Thoughts on QPR, Michael? Uh, yeah, similarly, I have a sort of soft spot for them, uh, partly because of Loftus Road, big part because of Les Ferdinand. I was a, really loved him in the early 90s, just that ability to kind of hang in the air like Michael Jordan. It was yeah. incredible. And a forehead that was made for heading. It was like an Oliver Bierhoff style, it was just a slab. It was <laughs> yeah. perfectly made for yeah. a football to strike. It was amazing. <laughs> the, the main reason I had a soft spot for them, though, um, and it comes across in this documentary, is my first ever Sabutio set had the QPR team as part of the the set Amazing. Um, and those sort of blue and white hoops and yeah. it didn't have the Adidas crest but in this this film it does we'll, we'll come to that but I sort of always as a result I've had a, we'll a, real, a, real, a real yeah absolutely a real sweet spot for them <laughs> we can't talk about it now we must dedicate more time to it later on <laughs> I I think they are um I think they're yeah I really like them um I remember them beating Man U 4-1 on was it like Boxing Day or New Year's Day or something when I was really young mm. and that was on TV? I think it's also probably the nearest ground if you drew a, got a ruler to where I was born. So th- theoretically, I should support QPR. What do you mean the nearest London club? What's oh, what? This- why is this ruler? Why does this ruler analogy keep coming up? Are you being sponsored by stationery? Well, you've mentioned rulers three times in the first three. What the, what the hell is this show? If you were to get a shatterproof ruler, which is available from a, that's such a weird show. Um. <laughs> you get some tracing paper and trace over every ground in Britain. The shape. Of the <laughs> um, yeah. 
Another big thing about Cupar in the 90s was that they were the team supported by uh, Eddie Hitler, Adrian Edmondson in bottom, of course. And yes. I, I assumed that was because Adrian Edmondson was a, a QPR fan, but it's not. Exactly I looked into so. it and it's because they had the character support QPR because they were really crap at the time. But also it's based in Hammersmith. Yeah, my favourite. My friend's dad has got a copy of this, but um, Pete Doherty was a huge QPR fan when he was a teenager. And used to he made his own pro uh, sorry made his own fancy <laughs> made his own program what a dweeb he would then go to the ground and read <laughs> <laughs> made his own fancy I think it's called All Quiet on the whatever one of their stage stands is called you see he used to be one of those people that sell fanzines outside the outside the ground wow well so every yeah. week he'd write it with, with friends I don't know if it'd be weekly. Yeah. I, the Plymouth one was like kind of every month or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Old oh, Rubber the Greens. I wonder if Rubber the Greens is still going. Great shirts as well, QPR. I think they've got to, it's a it's a nice design. I think they've had some really. I've nice already ones. said we'll come to that. I know, <laughs> but it's <laughs> Craig, take a good look at your running order. I'm now saying we have come to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the future was slightly slightly sort of closer than you anticipated. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, yeah nice shirt. But we'll we'll, we'll come to that. We'll come to that. <laughs> Shall we talk, Michael? What do you want to say about the kit? No, no, it's, we'll come to it in a, in a linear and orderly fashion. <laughs> if if you were to sort of like lay out a ruler for between now and how soon we'll come to it, how many <laughs> ruler lengths in a script would it be? I'm excited about that. Bit. Um, so, so we're going to talk about a BBC documentary in 1988 about uh, Cupar getting a sports psychologist, and it's called With a Goal in Mind. But we're going to come to that. But we thought, because there's, we get sent things like lots of clips that we should watch. And I thought, seeing as we're doing one QPR thing, we should do the other QPR thing we've been sent, which is, and I, you know, I, I, I didn't know this existed. I don't know if any of you did, but this was a Noel Edmonds, Noel's house party, gotcha on the full QPR team from what, 1994, something like that. The, the clip starts with um, Noel welcoming the team into the into the crinkly bottom set, which is already an already an exciting image for me. I don't know about you guys, but I, I found that absolutely thrilling. And also the reception they get. Do you not think I've been watching? I've been gone down a real gotcha wormhole recently, so I've watched a lot of them, but I've never heard a reception get granted by the Noel's House well, Party audience like the one they get. It's a real media team, Chris QPR. So there's. <laughs> There's a lot of the a lot of the crew are going mad at that point. All the producers, the the commissioners. That's what you're hearing there. It's a reaction sort of a, me, a media audience going mad for their. Uh... But no, it's, it's they, people go crazy for it. <laughs> well, especially, got... especially Trevor Sinclair as well. There seems to be yeah. a huge applause with Trevor Sinclair. He's sort of like it's Trevor Sinclair. I, I also noticed that because there's only a, a sofa, which because normally they only got to one person. They kind of three of them sit on the sofa and the rest crowd round. Yeah, and do you and know the, the three on the sofa is Trevor Sinclair, Les Ferdinand, and, and one other. And I thought they've Alan obviously McDonald. gone. You're the you're the three of my highest profile. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Did, I, did you? Th- yeah. Imagine that discussion. Les and Trevor are going to sit on the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair enough. To be honest, yeah. it's fair enough. Uh, um, no, it's incredible. They all come down. There's about sort of um, enough suit material to clothe three thousand men as well. Like, all huge. <laughs> Sort of flowing. I love that sort of early nineties footballers always had those massive suits at that time. I don't know. Yeah. Was, that, was that the fashion in a general sense, or was that just sports people? I don't know. Yeah, NBA no, you, players as well had massive suits. Of course, like, there's that picture of the Chicago Bulls team of Michael Jordan. They yeah, had massive suits. 
Like Huge. so much, like yeah, you're right. Material. I don't know what. That is, is it because they used to have baggy kits, so they were used to the bagginess? Right. Like in the eighties, where they were wearing tiny trousers <laughs> to, to adapt to the tiny shorts. Did I tell you? Uh, like everything was baggy, wasn't it, in the nineties? And I, I, I read in a book, one of the books you recommended me, Josh, about the Strokes. That the Strokes basically reinvented skinny jeans. Like so. Everything was baggy until mm. like yeah, two thousand and one, when the Strokes turned up in skinny jeans, and then the world reset. It, it was actually they'd seen this episode of Noel's House Party, that's what <laughs> with the and thought, "Enough's yeah. enough. Enough's enough, guys." <laughs> Look that... at this Ferdinand on that sofa. Ned Zelich's suit is too big in that situation. <laughs> Did you see the? Uh, do you remember, I don't know if you've seen the the skin tight suits that the Cameroon team wore in two thousand and two at the World Cup. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Like swimsuits. So just uh, do you remember when George Campos designed his own suit? That was controversial. <laughs> anyway, um, do you think they've picked QPR? This is my question. Noel's House Party, uh, from memory, was on in the winter months. So it was on during the football season. October to March. October to March. So this is a game evening. So have they picked QPR... Because they're the only team, a uh, genuine question, that can make it from the ground in time to go on the show. And if so, have they literally finished playing within the last hour and a half, two hours? When well, the show? Is, is it Les Ferdinand who limps on? Like when yeah. he comes down the stage and Noel references that. So yes, I, I think does, they yeah. have just played a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine <laughs> if you've lost and you're a fan and you've gone to that <laughs> and you get home and you turn on the TV and they're all... Larking around suits <laughs> with headbands. But it must be that. I think it probably is that. It's a, it's a London team, home team, who can get to the studios quick enough. That's basically what it is. I don't think there's any sort of real... I mean, QPR weren't... They weren't a massively successful team at that time, were they? They were like lower half battling, weren't they, surely? And I don't have any memories of them sort of yeah, being anything other than that. But also, so, the, the gotcha is clearly filmed at Loftus Road, which is yeah. 200 metres from TV Centre, whatever. It's really right. close. Maybe you are right, Chris. I mean, again, I'm right. <laughs> so um, the gotcha basically involves, I'd say it's a quite a shit gotcha. I liked it. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. I agree. I agree. Because I think if you don't realise it's a gotcha pretty soon, you're fundamentally stupid, basically. <laughs> I think if any of those players don't realise after about two minutes that this is not real, then they're idiots. Michael, would you like to describe the, the gotcha? Uh, yeah, so it's basically what looks like some kind of conference room at Loftus Road that's been very, very badly decorated to look like something from, was it the clothes show? Clothes oh, show, um, yeah. Yeah, sort of like a cheap uh, party warehouse, like dangling glittery uh, decorations to make up some kind of runway. But it's so poorly, att- I mean, everything about it is, is lo-fi and rushed. Like, they haven't even filled the front row of chairs like for the first shot. You're like, come on, guys, get someone to sit in there. I think Crane's right. Like within 90 seconds, you know this is fake. Which for me, then that completely undermines the next incredibly the next nine minutes this item goes on for. Like it's so long. And it's the same joke over and over and over again. It blew my mind, like how slow like telly was back then i was like yeah right this this is like a one minute sketch at best but when you compare it to something like i mean anton dex obviously the production values and stuff are there is huge but 
the show that was on at the time that would do a similar thing was Beatles about. Now that's how you do a gotcha. Like that's how you trick someone because the person that's being tricked believes right up until the final moment that this is happening for real. Those guys aren't surprised that Edmonds is coming out at the end. Like when Edmonds comes out with the little trophy at the end, he almost looks embarrassed himself. <laughs> he, just, he sort of walks out and goes like, there you go. Got ya. <laughs> I can't believe I'm hearing this. I thought it was fantastic. The thing is, like, Michael, you're a guy who likes 2020 cricket. I like a test match. I'm glad it went on for nine minutes. So I'm going to do another another nine minutes on top. It's a bit, yeah, it is the same joke, but it's just variations of an excellent it's, joke. It's a closed show. And they've pretended that they're having a vote on some designers are making QPR's next kit. Yeah. and which, which, from the get-go, is completely implausible. <laughs> like, it, it would never, ever happen. Did you? So I, I thought, like, I say this as a fan of Noel's house party. Not, not, not like I wouldn't sit down and watch it now, but like it, I was, I loved Noel's house party, and I still think it's it was an amazing show. Um, and there are other gotchas that are brilliant. So it's just, I think that the problem with this is normally a gotcha or beatles about or whatever it's called on anton deck is happening to one person so you see that person react yeah. here it's happening to 15 only two of which you recognize <laughs> well there's a point where they've been doing a they've been doing the parade of uh different kits and it's only when um sort of who is it who's it who came out who is it that i recognize i think well it's basically when les ferdinand came out that i was convinced i realized oh these are actually players that are doing this i didn't realize that the people who are coming out in the kits were also the players i had no idea i thought they were just sort of like people who work for noel's house party rather than the qpr first team and it's like oh it's les ferdinand oh right they're doing the thing but the whole thing is is rubbish though like from the beginning they got the they got the host who is for some reason to show that she's a, a fashion person is wearing a power suit and a kangol cap <laughs> and that's why they suggest that she's sort of like high fashion so she's doing this piece to camera but you're right michael like the whole thing is so cheaply done you can see like the it's like old curtain material with frayed bits around the edges to start the beginning yeah. of the the catwalk like the whole thing looks... working men's club like it's the, the set decoration and, and this is a big high profile saturday night show like biggest I, show I, in the country probably yeah i I, th- I think they did a very poor job but chris loved it <laughs> So uh, yeah, but some of the kits that obviously we got to talk about the kits. The first kit comes out. Not yet. Is is it happening? (laughs) I actually haven't got much kits. I just think they're quite nice kits. (laughs) The first kit is obviously covered in sequins, and the shorts are like comically short. And uh, they cut. They cut to the QPR players watching. Jerry Francis is in bits. Like it's worth. It's that's what makes this great. It just keeps cutting to the, to the people watching, and Jerry Francis is just reaching new levels of hilarity. Other, then, than, then, other than Jerry Francis being in bits, he's also in the worst shell suit I've ever seen in my entire life, which is far worse than anything that the QPR players are being forced to wear on the catwalk. It's unbelievable. It's got the same cut as sort of Les Ferdinand suit that we'd seen on on screen, but it's just incredible. Incredible. He's such a he's an unusual looking man, Jerry Francis, isn't he? He doesn't. Keep going with the hair. I can't. Like, it's mad. He's still got that hair, isn't he? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how long has that not been fashionable? <laughs> it must be nine. Honestly, you, you could make a case that his hair's not been fashionable since nineteen ninety. What is his hair? How do you just like? If you had to go in and ask for Jerry Francis's hair, <laughs> so the challenge is 
you can't, <laughs> you can't mention Jerry Francis, which, to be fair, would be of little help in a barber in 2021. <laughs> <I imagine. laughs> right, you've got long hair, so you've got. Your hair is basically like Marty Pello from Wet, 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 okay? (laughs) And you need to go in, and the challenge is you need to leave with as close a haircut to Jerry Francis as possible. What are you asking for? I'm asking for a a flat-top mullet. (laughs) That's nice. I I would go, like, the first first four-fifths of my hair... From, from like the back of my cranium, just cut that like a normal haircut, like a French crop, and then the back, just leave the rest. Just leave it down the back of my shoulders. <laughs> Don't touch it. It is a remarkable haircut, isn't it? It's like he's um, stuck a wig on the wrong part of his head. It's weird. It's, like it's on the back. He doesn't understand where it's supposed to start, so it's like sliding down the back. It's really weird, isn't it? I'm looking at pictures of it now. <laughs> what a bizarre choice. I find. What does he ask for when he goes to the hairdressers? The usual. The usual. <laughs> yeah. Do you think he's had the same hairdresser? And this is niche now, isn't it? Now we get into the good stuff. Do you think he's had the same hairdresser for his whole life? Must be. Yeah, yeah. presumably 100%. one day his hairdresser's going to pass away because he'll probably be older than Jerry Francis. And Jerry Francis is going to be completely rudderless. <laughs> absolutely no frame of reference to use. When, when Jerry Francis's hairdresser dies, it'll be like the people that um, do thatch roofing on cottages. Like there's so few of them left in the country that can do that hairstyle that they can charge an absolute fortune for it. <laughs> like, a, like a steeplejack. <laughs> a different era. Strange. Um, so that was the warm-up. Um, shall we get on to the main... Have you got anything more to say about how much you love the gotcha, Chris? Yeah, like so. So some of the kits. There's one with the feather trim hood. Yeah, uh, it, it cuts the crowd. Jerry Francis got his head in his hands, and then the big, but the big one is Les Ferdinand comes out in like a red lycra shirt. It's like a gl- a glittery cape. He's completely covered in sequins. And the thing that keeps happening is the designers keep saying, "You're this is out of order." You're all laughing at. I, I, like, I liked that element. Yeah, it's the players. This is why I think they know it. They don't think it's a joke because they they don't they stop laughing. And even Les Ferdinand kicks off at one point. He's like, it's not me making people laugh, mate. I'm just walking out. <laughs> yeah, the, the stakes didn't feel particularly high. It didn't feel like the players thought they were going to have to play in those kits. Yeah. There were a couple of bits that looked all right. There was like some glittery leggings that sort of like looked like the sort of thing, you know, when a South American player's not used to the cold here. <laughs> Despite the fact it's June. <laughs> They're wearing a snood and sort of leggings. I've seen that sort of thing. There's also this, there's a sort of like a, a goalkeeper's kit, which is a bit like a sort of superheroes thing with red yeah. pants. And I thought yeah, it was some pads. charm if goalkeepers are made to sort of dress as superheroes. Whether that's a nice thing, I don't know. <laughs> Way of encouraging kids into it, but like I think I think I think I completely agree with you, I, Josh and, and Michael. I think I, I didn't believe it. Les Ferdinand was, admittedly was having the time of his life, but uh, I just don't think any of them really believed it was happening. That was the problem. Really. Yeah. Um, one observation I made, and this is why I think uh, Les Ferdinand might be a really, really nice guy. There's a there's a bit in it where the interviewer comes up to him and says, would you, what do you think of this red glittery cape you're wearing? Would you wear this next season? He goes, no, I wouldn't. But I might wear it for warming up. And I thought, oh, he just, he's offered that olive branch there. Because he's a nice guy. He would put up with yeah. wearing it in warm-up, even though it is yeah. really ridiculous. Would you wear this next season, Les? No, I'm going to be playing for Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Right, a, a slightly less light entertainment vibe could be found on QPR's QED documentary. QED being, I, I don't really remember 
watching it, but I remember it existing. It was basically a science documentary strand of the BBC. Is that right? I think that's what it was. Yeah. Um, it's got. I, I enjoyed the theme tune, which felt like Tron. I enjoyed that. <laughs> and then the documentary follows a psychologist who goes into the QPR dressing room for six weeks to attempt to kind of help with their mental toughness and their positivity yeah. and stuff like that to well, see whether the he can have the an BBC, impact the, on the, the show actually, they, they pay for it themselves. The BBC pay for this psychologist to join. We pay for it, yeah. right? Yes, we pay for it uh, to <laughs> see if see if it has effect, basically, if this if sports psychology guy is going to impact the team. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say, like, sports psychology is introduced as a bit of a novelty act here. They're like, oh, this is new thing. Yeah. But, like, sports, but and interesting, so I looked up this guy, John Sire, who's the sports psychologist who came in. Who came in. He helped Spurs in the 1981-82 season, which was the season they won the FA Cup. And after this documentary, he worked with the British Olympic team, specifically Chris Boardman, who oh. went on to win gold at the 92 Olympics. Yeah. So he's actually... Got uh, got the creds. This guy, pretty decent. It yeah. does feel felt slightly like there was an element of look at this weirdo, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it speaks a lot about what you know, the culture was in 1988, and the idea that you should be in touch with your thoughts and your emotions that they have any control over you. It feels it's almost presented like that's a ridiculous or a weird thing for men blokes yeah. to be sort of to be encountering really so and you can see that with the qpr players a lot of them throughout the documentaries we'll, we'll talk about but it, it clearly is it's sort of like an alien new concept they, they describe it as controversial they describe this they say the controversial idea of having a sports psychologist you look how much that's changed now with wenger and all these sort of yeah. things completely changing that but well, of it, course. It, this guy's brought in and it, at that time it clearly was a weird thing to them it, it did yeah i mean even i mean the, the whole thing is so amateur there's an amazing bit right at the start where they're doing their stretches before the match in the dressing room a one-man stretch is he's just quite violently (laughs) swinging his neck around 360 (laughs) degrees did you see this (laughs) yeah it's quite like like he was warming up his neck by just (laughs) circling it as fast as possible to attempt to get his, his neck warm. It's brilliant, that, that initial, because the, the narrator goes, the traditional view of a, of a manager, um, of, sorry, the traditional view of success is a manager's job. The players are just there uh, and expected to keep fit and do what's asked of them. So the narrator says that's all the players need to do is keep fit and do what's asked of them, which is kind of the way late 80s football was, really, wasn't it? You just run up and down, chase the ball. There's yeah. not much of the finesse about it. And then sort of, you've got Jim Smith sort of wandering around like a man who's won sort of arable farmer of the year. He looks ridiculous. <laughs> he doesn't look like a, a manager. He's a ruddy cheek sort of country bumpkin. He looks like he's so, on Devon and Cornwall. He does. <laughs> Exactly, showing you his pasture. But it, the whole setting of this uh, of the changing room is so of its time. So this guy coming in is sort of like this thrust to modernity. They're just not really they're not ready for it at the beginning. Yeah, same modernity. But the, just on the point of modernity, like where this squad's at. There's what there's one bit where they finish a game and you see the whole team tucking into cans of tango. Like yeah. after a match, apart from Paul Parker, who's drinking a cup of tea. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> he's got bone china and he's drinking a cup of tea, which I love. I like, but surely, I mean, we've all been like, we've all done some sort of sport and come back knackered. Like a big feel, like fizzy orange can, like can of tango. But, after a game, that's going to be do your insides no good. I was talking to who was I talking about? Ellis the other day. I think he's. I think he's got this as. Material is Welsh set, but I, I would still raise it as a point. 
No one drank water until about the year 2000. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. I I just don't remember water. These days, I am constantly trying to hydrate and not quite managing it. (laughs) I don't think I drank water until I was at university. I saw a tweet the other day, someone said, what is it that you think, or you used to think uh, that people do that is really posh, that's not posh at all? And I would say growing up, if I went to someone's house and their family was drinking water, I'd be like, these guys are posh. I, <laughs> I just, it blew my mind that people would drink water. Really late in my life did I think, Maybe there's something in this. So what were you drinking? What were you drinking? <laughs> what were you drinking back in the day then? Squash, surely. As a kid. Squ- yeah, yeah, Robinson's. Squash yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Ribena, Robinson's, yeah. Fizzy Pop. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What about you? Um, what was I drinking? I I I was a big milk guy. That was my uh <laughs> Huge Ian Rush fan, yeah. huge milk guy. But I did drink a lot of milk. I did, yeah, yeah. And that sort of, you know, maybe strong and just maybe the sporty guy that I am now. But <laughs> you can't break my bones, no matter what you do. I'm, I'm unbreakable. Um, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. But it's, yeah, so the, the, it's, 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 I love these moments where you cut back to the changing room and it's just so different. The, the stretches, the way they're warming up. There's always, in these, in these um, documentaries of like late 80s shows, there's also always a, one player who's got a moustache who looks about 55 as well. It's like, you know, how are you still playing professional football? Crane, that's David Seaman and he's one of the youngest yeah, men of the squad. It's amazing. David Seaman looks 40 and this is the beginning of his career. <laughs> yeah, the, thing, the great thing I love about this documentary is you see David Seaman like in, in his own clothes, like in yeah. this era. And it reminds me of like a joke, like when you see a teacher where like, and then you go on a school away trip and they wear their own clothes. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, "Wow, that's what David Seaman's fashion. David Seaman's fashion is crazy. <laughs> it's, just, well, yeah. it's not crazy. It's just denim jeans I, and like a like a blue jacket. You're like, wow, that's what he wears. If you compare the QPR gotcha to this one, to the QPR documentary, which is what six years, you can see in their clothes the money that's already coming into football yes. that wasn't yeah, there yeah. in the late '80s. Well, the extra material yeah, investing yeah. in it more." <laughs> So we then see his first talk to the players that is one of the most boring things I've ever it's seen. Incredible. And Michael, They've... as an editor, it must have driven you wild quite <laughs> quite how much they showed of it. There's one shot, I'd say, is, it's just one long sort of B-roll shot, like a panning second camera shot of all of the players sat there. It's so boring this guy who's giving the speech has got a real kind of substitute science teacher vibes about him like if he was your teacher it's a friday afternoon like you know you're not doing any work you're trading football stickers in the back of the classroom like people are throwing rubbers across the room like how he is a allegedly you know you're in the back street kids (laughs) (laughs) you're flushing pug down the toilet No, I know what you mean. It's such a long, slow shot. And the players all have the sort of like bored look of 20 lads on a speed awareness course in Newport. <laughs> they just look so bored by this guy who also sounds really boring as well. I'm sure he's very interesting, very good at his job, but there's no enthusiasm on his part, is it? Um, at all. So I've got some, maybe this is the point so I should drop in some exclusive insight I've got on this. So uh, 
to rewind the clock, I, I'm don't even, I don't even know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but, but Martin Allen was my childhood hero. I was obsessed with Martin Allen yeah, as a kid. You have I have, oh, good. <laughs> uh, and like, I had Martin Allen posed on the wall, and like, like, would just I was obsessed about Martin Allen because he was so like passionate and tenacious, and like scored some amazing goals. And then eventually, like, I, I got to meet, I got to hang out with Martin Allen, and he was basically for the first two years of our relationship, like mean to me all the time at every turn and when I would do stuff like writing the program and say like Martin Allen was my favorite player growing up he would think I was taking the piss I was like no no really you were my favorite player and then but in that time like in that two years where he was like not like not very nice to me he would if he ever met Sophie on the occasions he'd meet my wife he would lay on the charm unbelievably chivalrous and like interested in her and then she would go, what a nice man Martin Allen is. So I was like, he's just, he's been a dick to me all day. And then one, like after two years, it completely changed. We did like some Q&A at West Ham and it, and it just basically ripped it. And after, after that two years, he was suddenly, he just flipped and was the nicest man to me and now became a bit of a friend. And so actually I was, when, when he popped up with this documentary, he's one of the players who decides he wants to take on the sports psychologist. He's like, I want... I'm really interested in learning about sports psychology and I want to be a part of it. <clears throat> I would have thought he would hate it. And like you say, the QPR team looked so disinterested. So I was like, tell me about this John side. Like, did it work? Did you think it was any good? And, it, and apparently like he developed a fantastic bond with this John side and went to him for years after this QPR oh, wow. documentary um, ended. And he said um, it, it made a fundamental difference to his life. And, and, and he took lessons from this documentary that he, he, he took forward into management and used throughout the rest of his career. And actually, some of the stuff the psychologist talks about is like visualizing things over and over again to imagine them happening. And that's what Zlatan Ibrahimovic talks in his book about what kind of the, his tricks, that the, the, the mental strength that he come up with in order to become a great player. He would visualize, spend a lot of time visualizing stuff. It's actually like this documentary and what this psychologist is talking about is like 30 years ahead of its yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm going to say that I don't think Martin Allen knew what he could achieve from this guy because <laughs> the first scene in which Martin Allen goes to the psychologist and the psychologist asks what, Martin Allen would like to improve psychologically with his game. And Martin Allen says that he wants to be able to run as fast as Paul Parker. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't. I'm not entirely sure it works like that. (laughs) I'm a sports psychologist. You're not a fucking (laughs) X-Man. I'd like to be as tall as Gary Pallister, please. So do you, uh, you know you know you know what the psychologist did? He um he kneecapped Paul Parker. That's the way. Just quite clever. So well, funny enough, last time I saw Paul Parker was on he was on crutches. I don't know why, but you know Martin <laughs> Allen was also in the press room. So uh, that dream did eventually come true for Martin Allen. I did like your Martin Allen story. Can I just briefly say it was a little bit like um, Alan Partridge's? Suffice to say, I had the last laugh <laughs> story where he go he bullied me from ages. But then I then I nailed a Q and A and we were mates. So suffice to say, I had the last laugh. <laughs> you really came out of that. Just imagine how many shit Q and As we had over that two year period <laughs> before we had a good one. So yeah. Martin Allen requests that he'd like to um, run as fast as Paul Parker. <laughs> as fast as Paul Parker, which is an astonishing. He then kind of makes Martin Allen close his eyes and describe himself doing well. And it's quite weird because it, it's a bit like Martin Allen's regressing to a past life. 
Like, he's kind of quietly saying the word Tony Adams to himself. <laughs> yeah. the, the psychologist is saying, where's Tony Adams? He's, like, yeah, he's coming he's... up. It's a bit like a psychologist. He's trying, it's like he's trying to get him to deal with something awful Tony Adams has done to him in the past. Yeah. <laughs> Where did Tony Adams touch you? <laughs> <laughs> and then if you didn't think Martin Allen's request was surreal enough, the other player, Dean Coney. <laughs> Coney. Yeah. <laughs> He wants to be able to dodge to the left. <laughs> yeah, he does. Because <laughs> he can only no, isn't it? He can only yeah. dodge to the left. I can't, can't dodge, dodge right. To the right. Oh, sorry, sorry. Dodge right. So, yeah, he dodges to the left. He can't dodge to the right. And, Which is like what? Like he's got one leg longer than the other. <laughs> it is like that. It sounds like there's something wrong with your Xbox controller. <laughs> it's like that scene in Zoolander where he can't he can't turn left at the end of the, the runway. Right. Ben Stiller's actually a really, really big fan of this documentary. <laughs> I can't dodge right. What is that? Um, I looked up Dean Coney, by the way, um, just was interested in what happened to his career. That season, he was sold by QPR to Norwich. And uh, he only scored one goal in the next season for Norwich, and that came off his ass. <laughs> so that's uh, <laughs> Nigel Spinked did a goal kick, and it hit Dean Coney on the ass, and then went in. So that was his only goal the following season. So um, yeah, but anyway, yeah, can't dodge, can't dodge right is his problem. Isn't it? The interesting thing about this sports psychology experiment starting when it does, they say uh, the date they say it starts is on the third of October, right? So at that point, they've played ten games of the season. They're top of the league. They've won eight of the first ten, drawn one, and lost one. After the experiment starts play 10, the following 10 games, they only win one, draw four, and lose five, oh, including wow. a loss to Berry in the League Cup. So, I like, if if you're, like, Jim Smith, the manager, you, are you thinking, fuck off, what, this is, <laughs> you are to blame here? Well, the, fir- the first game they do after they after their, their, when they've done the stuff about running faster uh, is a 4-0 loss to, to Liverpool, uh, immediately lose 4-0. And they have that journalist in the crowd, <laughs> have you seen that? They have a journalist who they've recruited channel the show has to sort of make notes on whether the stuff is coming off and she says that Dean Coney unfortunately they don't know if he could jig right or left because he unfortunately didn't touch the ball in 90 minutes but (laughs) she did think that Martin Allen seemed a bit faster which I don't (laughs) think can be true at all I mean how does she know no well actually it was Paul Parker was a bit slower (laughs) (laughs) can we take a moment from just mocking just to acknowledge how good John Barnes is. Unbelievable. That goal he scores What a goal. He's so elegant. I love the... There's something about the way he plays when he goes past players. He's so, almost motionless as he goes past them. I yeah, think it, it's amazing. He might be one of my favourite players ever. Anyway, carry and, on. And also, can we just point out, Alan Hansen is really a really good defender. Like yeah, Chris, really yeah. good in the air. <laughs> no shit. Yeah, well, that's that's the other that's the other stat from that game is that Dean Coney lost every header against Alan Hansen. <laughs> that's what the journalist says. He really? went up for a number of headers against Alan Hansen and lost them all. Chris, yeah. I, I I know I'm I was drawing attention to John Barnes, but you know that Alan Hansen is one of the most successful defenders in the history of British football. Well, I do now. You see what he did to <laughs> Dean Coney? <laughs> He'd been visualising all week. <laughs> I know, but you kind of forget. I mean, Alan Hansen is, in my mind, a pundit. And obviously, I'm aware of his his, foot, his, yeah. his footballing career. But you, you see not. it and you're like, oh, yeah. Do you know what, as well? Like, um, I was watching uh, Gaz's goal against Scotland. Oh, my God. Here we go. Uh, great run. You forget that he starts that run in his own half. 
That anyway. Maradona goal against England was brilliant. You, it, it was actually a really good goal, that one. It was, and he's pretty good. He's pretty, he had something. You have to remind yourself of this. And, you know, great kit, but we'll get on to that. <laughs> so, one of my favourite things about this, so they lose the first game 4-0 against Liverpool. And then the next day, um, Martin Allen meets the coach, Peter Streve. They decide the plan is no longer for him to run really, really fast. It's now for him to take much more time on the ball, which is basically to play really, really slow, which is so that's the, the exact opposite of what Martin Allen had hoped to achieve. They immediately after the first game go, no, the fast thing's not really going to work, to be honest. I think we can try the really slow thing instead. They just abandoned it. The phrase, everyone wants to run as fast as Paul Parker. <laughs> Also, everyone wants to catch pigeons, is what he says. Everyone wants to be able to catch pigeons and run yeah. as fast as Paul Parker. Was that a metric for speed back in the day, being able to catch pigeons? I'd never <laughs> heard that before. Paul Parker's the only person who can. <laughs> <laughs> and then Dean Coney changes his uh, thing, because he decides he can now he can dodge to the right now. Yeah. Uh, and his becomes score with a header. Well, he actually it becomes being more nasty. Uh, in the room. And then what happens is there's a bit of match footage and he doesn't say it himself. The VO says, and also uh, he wants to score with a header. And you're like, what? That's a bit weird. And then it comes to the end of the film, which we'll get to when we get there, where they basically have clearly reverse engineered (laughs) a moment to justify the sort of slightly snake oil salesman support psychology that's that's gone on in this film. Because obviously, you know, None of us are discounting the benefits or the relevance of sports science. Like in the modern game, it's essential, especially at the elite level. You know, marginal gains are crucial. But there is definitely an element with this guy of snake oil salesman. Like when he's talking to Ryan Allen about the Paul Parker stuff, he sort of says to him, you know, if you visualize and think that you can be as fast as Paul Parker, then you will be as fast as Paul Parker. And then at the end, he goes, um, you know, given that you keep working at the physical stuff as well. It's just like, yeah, of course, if he works yeah. at the stuff, he'll get faster. Sat there thinking he'll be the fastest Paul Barker. He's never going to be. I can't sit here and go, oh, yeah, if I think for long enough, my hair will grow back. It's like <laughs> some, some things just are beyond the realms. Um, and then they have another one. So they have these long talks with the full team, which are so boring. They're also quite reminiscent of the episode of The Office where Brank <laughs> brings in his guitar. <laughs> That's the exact note I have. It's exactly like The Office. Also, can we just talk quickly about what Jim Smith's wearing? Yeah, it's astonishing. <laughs> I'd never... It's really ostentatious gear he's got on. He's got like really kind of polished brogues, like big brown trousers, white socks, and then like a white cricket V-neck <laughs> jumper. Yeah. And his body language is so alpha. Like, uh, he's got a really deep tan, like this big, like, jewellery underneath there. And he's a, he's a big man, isn't he? Well, I think in the 80s, managers were quite alpha. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. But I did, I, so I've got a bit of goss from Martin Allen. I, was, I said to Martin, like, what was Jim Smith like? I was surprised by what he was wearing. And he said, like, he was a great player recruiter. He was really good at getting in transfers. But he said he wasn't a very good coach. Like, he didn't do much on the training ground. But he was really good at motivating players, especially younger players. He would, like, really G you up. and would totally, would ball you out in front of the older players and bring the best out of you. But he also said that Jim Smith, the reason that QPR did so well that season is he said that the pre-season they went to Sweden and he made them train harder than ever before but they the formation he Martin Allen thinks that Jim Smith was the first in England to play three at the back 
which QPR started the season with. He had three at the back with wing backs, and they also played a, a number 10. And he said they had the plastic pitch, plus they were playing out from the back in this at uh, the start of this season, which he says they hadn't really seen in England before. Don't know where Jim Smith got it from, but yeah, three at the back, wing backs. The, the, the system used by all the big teams now, the play out from the back, the three, three centre-backs, Jim Smith was doing it this season at QPR. And that's what Martin Allen says contributed to their success. They finished fifth in the end. Well, well, well. I really, I really like him. I, I actually warm to him throughout. I think, I think he's yeah. Feels he's like a warm guy. Peter with the whole thing. He is. Yeah. There's some. There's some quite sweet moments like when they have to go around and rate what their level of belief is in the season. Where they've got this sort of thing, and everyone's giving six or seven, and he says ten. So you know, and everyone laughs, including the psychologist, which doesn't really seem <laughs> right. I'm not sure that's your, your job. I think you're supposed to take this sort of thing seriously. But he, he's clearly quite sort of like he's quite a supportive guy, and he does listen to them, and he's actually kind of open to them suggesting stuff. Peter Shreve, the coach, his assistant, is actually really blocky and gets yeah. really annoyed when they seem to ask anything there's like a bit when they're having a team idea session and the players say their main issue is they don't know what to do when they're one nil down they don't know what they're supposed to do and peter shreve goes yeah we were actually going to try and sort of go across that this afternoon it's like were you really peter were you really i mean it feels a bit convenient that you brought this up now but everything he seems to sort of bite on everything he seems to not like he seems to resent it much more than jim smith does this idea of this guy coming in yeah we then come to a scene which i really enjoyed where you get to see Martin Allen at home. So you see him uh, boxing in his garage, and then he walks out of the garage and into his open front door in a strange... Like, he's just left the front door open while he goes to work out in the garage. Yeah. And then it shows Martin Allen doing his visualisation exercises. And he kind of sits on the sofa and then puts his hand to his head like he like he's Bruce Forsyth doing that pose at the start of the, <laughs> the generation you know that yeah, yeah, yeah. pose Bruce Forsyth does when he comes on that's Martin Allen's meditation pose and what's he thinking about at that point does he say is he just meditating and calming he's himself or is he just thinking about Paul Parker is. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's presumably thinking about how he should spend more time on the ball at that point okay yeah yeah, he's yeah, got. Yeah, I think yeah. he's got a little postcard on the wall that says, uh, "Be nasty to win the ball and composed in possession." So, so he really thinks this helped him, then, Chris. He, yeah, he yeah, generally yeah. feels it had a big impact. Yeah, he did. He did yeah, positive yeah. visualization, and he, he would get his teams to do a bit of that too. So, to be fair, it makes sense, doesn't it? Like you're just putting yourself in a positive mental mindset. And look at the way that teams run now with Guardiola, all these sort of manager. They all definitely employ this sort of stuff, this sort of you know mindset stuff. It's it's, it's kind of it's crucial, isn't it? Really? Yeah. So. You can see that it, it, it would work. Also, I think, like, I guess as sports people, you're looking for any kind of competitive edge. Like, even in 1988, when you think, oh, maybe they're, they're a bunch of lads that are not necessarily ready for it. I think there's an appreciation among that team that this could actually give them a bit of an advantage on the competition. And so I think they're all willing to throw themselves into it. Even though that that scene where they're all in a room in that big boardroom with the, like the big white flip chart right writing on there, like, is like the office. But at the same time, they are throwing themselves into it. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. What did you think, Michael? I mean, overall, I really enjoyed it. Um, I think it's a really fascinating, sort of lovely time capsule of you know mm. football in the late eighties. I think um, the problem was that a- Les Ferdinand stole that time capsule, didn't he? From the, uh- <laughs> <laughs> I, I think as a PR exercise for the benefits of sports science, I, I'd say it's an abject failure. I yeah, think I'd agree. the game, I totally the game just wasn't ready for it. The best you can say is it helped. 
I'd say some of the players and as men with communication. There's that's the sort of positive spin to take from it. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's actually um, there's a second series of it. They went back to QPR uh, in 2013. The BBC um, paid twelve and a half million to sign Krista Samba for QPR to, see if it could <laughs> to keep them up, and it really <laughs> it didn't pay off. <laughs> So was was the idea with this show that they would go to different places and test all these sort of what what actually is I I never quite knew what I was watching basically that's the other thing like it felt because it goes we're now going to QPR to see if sports psychologists will, will help the team like it was felt like just quite randomly dropped in I didn't know what yeah, just what the it's, it's was. just a random it's an umbrella in the same way that the South Bank show is an umbrella for a, a variety of different arts okay. documentaries yeah this is an umbrella for a variety of different science documentaries. So next week it might go and study whether, like prosthetics, or it might, and then the following week it might study whether organic farming is going to take off or whatever. Do you know what I mean? It's all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad we did the QPR one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We can't leave this subject without talking about their sponsor. The kits? The kits? Oh, yes. Start with the sponsor. Do you see who their sponsor was? Who was it? Holland. Holland brackets KLM. It has Holland written across the top. Like they're obviously they're advertising go to Holland with KLM, but it says Holland in orange, and then like underneath in brackets KLM. Oh wow! Oh, that's a cool sponsor. It's well, but again, weird sponsor, weird club. Did they have any Dutch players? Like it makes sense if you had a Dutch player, but I don't think they did. Did they? Like feels like there'd be some causal link there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. No, I don't know. Um, but that, if you drew a, used a ruler crane from Heathrow, <laughs> they would be one of the first clubs you come to. <laughs> um, the final shot of the documentary is quite bizarre. Over the credits, they just show up the bus kind of failing to park outside the ground for far too long. It's a really weird end to the show. The whole thing's made very cheaply. I don't think in any way it was a proper scientific test. I don't think they had enough footage, hence why scenes were strung out over eight or nine minutes. I don't think the majority of the players were particularly invested in it either. Like, I think a few were. Like, um, uh, bless him, what, who's our chap who can't go right? What's his name again? Um, Dean Coney. Dean Coney. Like, <clears throat> when he first sort of opens up at the very beginning when they're all sat there and says that, at night, I I lie in bed and I sort of think about things that have gone wrong in the games or whatever, and I, I, it keeps me awake. The rest of the squad just start laughing. <laughs> so it's like, uh, and there's another bit where they're all supposed to close their eyes for ages and breathe in and out, and Paul Parker opens his eyes to check if other players are, are grinning yeah. like him as well. I, I don't think, I mean, I think there are a couple of players that probably did invest in it, but I think a lot of them just thought it was nonsense. I think also as a psychologist, fine, Chris Boardman, that's your dream. You're one-on-one with someone who obviously wants you. Mm. The thought of going into a dressing room of 80s footballer lads and making them all close their eyes is a nightmare, surely, for a psychologist. That is your worst audience possible. Completely. But at the end, it's quite... I mean, Jim Smith seems to sort of be quite enamoured by it. He seems to think it's worked. It has, it has worked. Peter Shreve just looks, sort of like looks worried about what this represents to the future, basically. <laughs> He's got a sort of panicked look about change. But it, I think the end of it, there seems to be... And some of them, the end of the, some of the teams say it has made them more open and stuff, but I don't know if that's just the, 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 the programme the feeling, feeling they have to so say that. The camera's on you, aren't you, at the end of the yeah, day? Yeah, Completely. Yeah, completely. Um, where would you rank it in our documentaries you've watched, Skull? 
Uh, I mean, I mean, Crane, you've you've done so many great ones. Do I not like that? The Barry Fry one. I, I'm not putting that. I'm not putting it up there, but it, it was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it 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 was. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I don't think I'll come back to it time and time again. <laughs> I'd struggle to think I'll ever think of it again, to be honest with you. <laughs> but also, I thought it was what was quite interesting is they did have quite a lot of good players. Like yes, they, they, they did. had David Seaman, they had Paul Parker. You saw Les Ferdinand with a little moustache at one point, but I presume he hadn't broken into the first team properly by that point. Yeah, Trevor Francis is there too at this point. Is he? Yeah. He's got a very similar nasal voice to Peter Shreves. They actually lived together in quite a uh, cold house at the time in West London. How close did they live together? Because if you don't know, you could possibly get a ruler out. Bigger. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much, Tom. No it's pleasure. always a pleasure to watch something with yeah, you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank um, you. I'm sorry you didn't enjoy the gotcha as much as Chris did. Was... <laughs> I think you need to go back and watch it again, because uh, you'll be pleasantly surprised. Some of those kits are <laughs> hilarious. Um, um, no, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Tom Crane and QPR. Okay, guys. So I have, uh, I've got your quiz to end the show between Michael and Chris to decide what we go out on in honour of the USA World Cup, which we mentioned earlier. Seeing as I've got the Wikipedia page up, I want you to take it in turns. You've got one life each. Take it in turns to name cities which were used for stadiums in the USA 1994 World Cup. There are nine cities available that were used in the USA 1994 World Cup. Michael, do you want to play or pass? Uh, I will. I will play. Uh, I will play with Pasadena. Pasadena, California. The Rose Bowl, capacity 94,000. Yes. I think that was the final, wasn't it? Yep. I will go with New Jersey. Yes, the Giants Stadium, East Rutherford, New Jersey, capacity 76,322. The Dallas Bunker, so Dallas. Dallas, the Cotton Bowl, 64,000. New York? Chris, you've managed to pick the same stadium you picked in the first round. The New York, New Jersey Giants Stadium. I thought it was two. Oh, okay. But do you know what? You can go again. Okay. You can go again. Um, it's a cold one. Oh, man. Mm, Washington, Washington? The Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Stadium in Washington, D.C. Correct. 53,121. I, I would have made him clarify whether that was D.C. or Washington State. But... <laughs> uh, I think I've really let him off there with the uh, Washington and with the double New York, New Jersey issue. Uh, it's so tricky. I sort of remember the states, but like getting the city within the states is really difficult. Uh, I know there was one in Florida. I'm going to say Orlando, Florida. I was just thinking that. Yeah, the Citrus Bowl in Orlando, 62,387. Only four left, Chris. Um, Los Angeles? We've already had the Pasadena Rose Bowl. Was that in the Los only Angeles. one in Los Angeles? I thought, there was, I thought it was the That was the only one in Los Angeles, I'm afraid. I don't know, but I'm going to pick this because. It's famously a sporting city, and I'm going to say Chicago. 
Yes, the Soldier Field in Chicago, 63,160. I feel a bit like Sue Barker. This is a kind of round they do on Question Sport. Um, Seattle. I'm surely right with that. What? Incorrect. Oh, no oh. way. I, was so, I thought that, what was the one with the dome? I thought that was Seattle. So, there's the Giant Stadium, New York, New Jersey, the Pasadena Rose Bowl, the Dallas Cotton Bowl, Chicago Soldier Field, Orlando Citrus Bowl, Washington, D.C., Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Stadium. The ones you didn't get are the Foxborough Stadium in Boston, um, San Francisco Stanford Bowl, and the Pontiac Silverdome in Detroit. That's what I'm thinking about. The Silverdome. Oh, I'm sure Detroit was a there was a game there. There was an island game or something like that. It rings a bell that that took part in an in, important match. There was a really good goal um, there. I think from the Swiss. I think Switzerland scored. I'm, I'm remembering that 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 videotape of great goals from the USA '94. There's a really good goal at the Silverdome. Is that the one that was indoors? One of those stadiums. Yeah, that's that Silverdome's indoors. indoors. Yeah. Also, the scene of uh, WrestleMania three. Right, let's move on before we lose <laughs> listeners. Michael, what song would you like to play us out with? Uh, well, I think there's only one choice, and I would like the uh, the theme tune to the 94 World Cup, Glory Land. Ah, Glory Land. See you next week, or as Chris would say, Robbie Slater, see you later. Come the day you'll see that dream come true with every passing moment you begin to understand that you bound for glory land with a hunger in your heart and with fire in your soul. Rising high, can know that you can reach your goal. Reach your goal, believe in what you do, and you the strength to see it through. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8am. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease. 
and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.